Hey y'all, Alex Barinka here, head of external affairs at Bear Shop and host of Finding Inspo, the very first shoppable podcast where we'll bring you the stories of some of the biggest names in style and design, digging deep into how they turned inspiration into successful businesses. And each week, my guests and I curate the Finding Inspo shop at vershop.com slash inspo with the products that emerge from their personal stories. I have two very special guests this week, Scott and Missy Tannen, the husband and wife team that founded direct-to-consumer luxury bedding brand Bull & Branch. Just five years old, the Tannens company has been dubbed a viral marketing success, with happy customers including three U.S. presidents. Bull & Branch is already the biggest purchaser of organic fair trade certified cotton, and their sheets only cost the equivalent of a dollar a night for less than the first year. But Scott and Missy didn't start as textile aficionados. Far from it. When you think about kind of the the early formative days of of each of your careers, uh, where were you when you started? Well, my first job um, was that I would open the mail that came to Nabisco with people's resumes in the envelopes. And um, I had to take the resumes out of the envelopes and scan them. I hated that. Uh, And I hated it by about the second day I worked there. Um, I came home with paper cuts and all kinds of things like that and said, this, there has to be a better way. And I remembered that thing called the internet, which, you know, this is 1999. And and what the internet had basically enabled me to do was never go to the library and still get all my research papers done. And so I, I, on my own time came up with a way where people could submit their resumes electronically instead of me having to get paper cuts and scan them. Um, And so over the process of about six months, I, I learned how to make a website, how to <laughs> build an upload function, how to build a database, and all of those sorts of things, and rolled out Nabisco's first career website, which was awesome, um, except for the fact that I didn't have a job anymore afterwards because I wasn't needed. Um, so that at that point, I... I remember vividly someone saying, we've got to figure out how to get you to sell cookies and crackers for us. Um, And that's how I sort of became, you know, Nabisco's really first ever digital or internet marketing department. I I was, you know, a 22-year-old kid with with not much experience, but um, maybe a little more tech-savvy in a traditional organization, and, and away I went. So, Missy, take us to 1999. Where were you then? What were you working on? Back in 1999, actually, both Scott and I graduated that same year from Vanderbilt University, um, and I had studied to be a teacher. After graduation, I moved up to New Jersey and applied for any teaching job. You know, from I was certified from K through eighth grade and wound up um, getting a job in third grade. So I loved being a teacher. I was a third grade teacher in Bridgewater, New Jersey. Um, And what I really loved about it was working with the children, working with their parents, um, and really getting in there and figuring out how each child learns best and how to take the material that, that I was teaching and adapt it for each child. So I was the teacher who always loved having a hands-on project that we would do, whether it was math or science or anything in between. There would always be some component of something we were making or doing, like a physical representation of of the topic. Um, So for me, I've always been a maker. I've always loved whether it was quilting or painting or learning how to play the guitar or (laughs) any number of unfinished arts and crafts projects. I really loved making things from the very beginning. And definitely not a typical desk job kind of gal. 
No, definitely not. I love that I was in control of my third grade universe, and we had this special little bubble of our classroom where everyone, it was idyllic, you know, everyone was respectful of one another, and when you she, came She in, still doesn't use her desk, let's be honest. She <laughs> yeah. has one. It even has a really nice chair, and it's the least used chair in the entire company. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> And and we have to get a little personal because not only are you partners in business, but you're partners in life as well. At what point were you in your relationship as at this time? You're just out of college. Can you just kind of talk me through so we have a sense? We met in the fall of our junior year at Vanderbilt. If you don't know much about Vanderbilt and Southern schools, um, football games are not just, you know, show up in shorts and a T-shirt. Um, they're, they're affairs that you... In, in many cases, you wear like a tie and a jacket and the girls wear cocktail dresses and you go with dates. Um, and two of our best friends sort of at the very last minute more, more or less forced us to go on a blind date with each other. We didn't know each other. And so that was the beginning of our junior year. And, and to be honest, we, we haven't been apart since. Look, I am a, a Texas-born, Texas-raised, North Carolina grad, so I, I recognize the magic of the football game. Um, that makes me really happy to hear. So so you all met, um, you love the football culture, you moved out to Jersey, um, you were working at Nabisco, finally nabbed this job as kind of the, the spearhead of Nabisco's digital marketing department. What happened next in the course of your lives? I guess I realized I was suddenly like, in the corporate machine a little bit, but but because I was I was sort of, you know, I spent most of my time in the first few years of my business convincing people that the internet wasn't a passing fad, and that we needed to use it to advertise. And and literally, I became kind of somewhat of an internal salesperson, but really like an entrepreneur within a large company. Um, so you know, my dad was more of a traditional marketing person. I always kind of thought I was going to be a brand manager and one day go get my MBA and then and then work on big brands for, for my whole career. And I, I love working on big consumer brands, but, but I, I really started to find my way in terms of creating new and different ways to engage customers. And And so from a professional standpoint, you know, I was beginning to move from being a kid that was just sort of like figuring out marketing and, and maybe not understanding what rules I'm supposed to follow in a big company where it's like you're not supposed to think of new things. You're just supposed to do what everybody did before you, um, you know, and, and, and then moving. And not mess it up. And not mess it up. I mean, if you think about it, like I worked on a brand like Oreo. Oreo has been around for 100 years and big companies like Nabisco or Kraft as we became, they are completely set up so that idiots like me cannot break Oreo. Right. Like there is an entire system of executives and layers and red tape. And it is both incredibly frustrating to work in that environment. But you also understand, like, I didn't break Oreo. Um, and that's probably a good thing for America. <laughs> I know a lot of kids that would not be happy uh, had you done that. So, you know, it, it seems like uh, you and big corporate culture did clash a little bit. You seem like an optimist, right? You wanted to change things, to jump on new things, to uh, do things in a different way. But as you said, that's not really the internal temperament of a big corporation. Did you have an idea of how long you would be able to kind of emotionally almost make it work in that environment? Was there a kind of a clock put on your time there just because of some of the friction that you were running into? No. And, and in fact, the, the further I've gotten from it, the more I look back and realize just how incredibly lucky I was to grow up in, in sort of, you know, 
big corporate or big brand marketing. Um, and especially as I think about and look at a lot of other startups and a lot of young companies, the idea of building brand, which which at its core becomes this this connection. I mean, you mentioned a lot of kids would be really upset if I did something to screw up Oreo. That's a brand, right? That's that's the power of how emotional the relationship that somebody has with two chocolate wafer cookies and cream in the middle, right? It, it's the fact that their parents had it to them and introduced it to them over a glass of milk and their parents were introduced to it by their grandparents and so on and so forth. And and I think that that I look at it, I had the opportunity to work for some incredibly brilliant people that are that have also done amazing things, whether it's in big companies or or smaller businesses. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and I've been able to witness firsthand both the, the bureaucracy and the slow pace that a big company can move and understand ways to, well, I would do it differently this way and this way, but not not so much where I would, I would do everything differently. And I think at Bull & Branch, the reason our brand has resonated with so many people is, is a direct credit to so many people that I've learned from in terms of, you know, how they've been able to find that true human connection between a company and a producer of a product and the person at the very end who's using it and enjoying it. I think a lot of folks are in jobs or positions where they know it's not the end all be all for them, but they want to soak up as much as they can. But sometimes it's really hard to kind of operate with your eyes and ears open. What kind of advice would you give to people to make sure they're catching that inspiration when it comes and they're kind of filing it away in their personal filing cabinet to be sure that they can tap into it in the end? I didn't start at Nabisco with the idea that this was a stepping stone to, you know, going and founding a company or or doing those sorts of things. Like I was really happy to have a job. I was really excited by the work I was doing and, and getting to work on the brands that I loved. And I would say that, you know, there's there's an old quote that someone says where people don't leave companies, they leave, they leave people, right? They, they leave their boss. And to me, like the, the greatest piece of advice I could give ever, anybody is to don't try to think six steps ahead, appreciate where you are. And more importantly, if you can attach yourselves to leaders and mentors that you walk in without your ego in hand and, you know, you don't say, Hey, I went to Wharton. That means I get to start a company and I am you know, sort of like like entitled to this role as founder or whatever that, that you expect to be. If you can, in the moment, appreciate and enjoy the people from whom you get to learn and observe the decisions they make, good and bad, um, and take away from it the full experience. Give yourself the time to think, well, I might have done it differently this way, or wow, that was really smart. I didn't think about that. Over time, you're going to build your own playbook. But too often, I, I, I do find that there are young people that kind of walk around with a chip on their shoulder that they believe they know more than everyone. And, and the only thing holding them back is their years of service. And, and in some cases, that's certainly true. But in other cases, if you again, you try to look at it from an op- optimistic, positive perspective, we're all better from the, by the people who who teach us and, and that we get to learn from. And, and that's why I always say to people when they come to work here, like, look, my job is to get you to where you want to go in your career, which means I need to expose you to different things. Like, you, you know, you might be a marketing person, but if you really want to get to the point where you can start your own business someday, then I need to expose you to what fundraising looks like. I need you to expose you to, to things like what it's like to work with an investor. And, and for other people that don't have that interest, then, you know, also realizing not to, to bog them down. The piece of advice I, I always give is just keep your eyes and ears open and, and appreciate that you don't know everything. And the learning you can have firsthand from very smart people can't be replaced. I know as I've gotten older, I am I'm a lovely millennial. Um, I know a lot of folks like to peg us a certain way, and I've definitely taken my salts and, and learned to know what I don't know. But on the flip side, I'll also say patience is really hard. 
being kind of settling into something and doing that hard work is something it's it takes an emotional toll especially if you're somebody like me probably like you all who care very passionately about what you do missy i'm sure you've learned a level of patience and emotional intelligence from your past as a teacher what have you kind of brought to the table in your new life at bowen branch around operating uh, in that space You know, things that you learn that you bring to a job or to anything in life don't have to come from a physical four-walled office. So I feel like there have been so many life experiences that both of us and our whole team bring to the table that are just as important as business decisions that they had witnessed or been part of. So for me, I never dreamed in my wildest you know, dreams that I would be heading up all of our products at Bull & Branch. So, so from day one, my involvement has been, you know, we, we both together had this idea after I was shopping for sheets for our new bedroom of like, gosh, it's so confusing out there. What does thread count mean? What does Egyptian cotton mean? What is all this like traditional marketing buzz out there? I just really want some soft sheets. And... So once we had that idea, Scott could certainly size and see the business opportunity, but I was able to come from it of, okay, well, what would it mean to make that? And that's not something I learned at school or I learned from being a teacher. It's just from being inquisitive and curious and kind of part of a hobby that I've always had of just tinkering with anything, whether it's, you know, light switches or paint, you know, it's just, I love being busy and using my hands. So my job since day one has been to make the Bull and Branch products, not only from how they look and all the details that go into crafting our sizes that are so thought out and our stitching details, but what does it mean to actually make our fabric? And what is the cotton, you know, almost like a science project. Like we've, I fully looked at this like a research project. Like I need to learn everything I can about cotton and organic cotton and other materials and fibers that I could have used. And what makes that best end result? Like what does that cotton do? What does the weave do? What does the yarn size do? For me, it's been a compilation of so many things in my life from what I've learned from my parents to being a teacher to being a mom now. And just really our core values, I think that we have as people and that the team here at Bull & Branch, our entire office, everyone's very ambitious and driven, but also really kind. You know, we have really kind souls here, I would say, and people who look out for one another and care for one another and care for our partners. And it's something that's part of who Scott and I both are as people, but also the whole Bull and Branch ethos now. Let's take a quick break from my chat with Bull and Branch co-founders Scott and Missy Tannen. I wanted to remind you that like every Finding Inspo episode, this one is also shoppable. Scott, Missy, and I have curated items from our conversation and a few others that are inspiring us lately for the special Finding Inspo store on Vera Shop. Next to each product, we'll also tell you why we're loving it. Find the store at verashop.com slash inspo. And just for Finding Inspo listeners, new Vera Shop customers can take 20% off their first purchase with the code INSPOBB. I've gotten my hands on Bull and Branches sheets, and let me tell y'all, they are luxe. And for me, they've gotten even softer the more I've washed them. Coming up, we'll talk about how Scott and Missy landed on those materials that they are still using, the importance of brand building, and the personal risks they took to get to where the company is now. 
So let's do go back to even pre-day one. When you were out there, you were looking for sheets. You were not seeing what you wanted to see. How did that conversation go? Did you all sit down? What did that conversation look like? When did you realize that this this was something that you wanted to at least try or dig into? So at the time, I, I just sold my last company, and I, I was doing con- some consulting and, and things like that. I knew I wanted to start something on my own. And uh, Missy's entire goal in life at that point was to prevent me from playing video games all day while the kids were at school um, <laughs> on the couch, because that's my natural habitat. That's what I would do. Um, and uh, and and so she came home from, from the store, and she's like, gosh, you know, buying sheets is so difficult. And I thought, I was like, oh, my goodness, she is, she like, has. Like, this the, is all she has to worry like, about? Like, this is really what you're worrying about <laughs> during the day. And I'm like, let me, let, I will buy it. And so, like, I literally jumped on Google. It was, like, 9 o'clock at night, and she went up to bed with the kids. And I got, I, the next morning, I was like, honey, do you know thread count doesn't matter? And she's like, what, what are you talking about? And, you know, to make a long story very long story short, I, I spent most of the night literally uncovering a whole lot of things in bedding that, like, the little bit I knew was thread count or Egyptian cotton and, like, found out it was all, like, marketing bunk. And I'm like, literally everybody sleeps on this stuff and nobody knows anything about it. And and that was the – that was sort of the launching off point where Missy's like, yeah, yeah, okay, great. Did you buy anything? Like, we need sheets. We have a king bed now. And 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 so I started falling into the rabbit hole myself in terms of just there's got to be a better way. And at some point when it came down to I was starting to meet with folks and Missy's like, oh, my gosh, this guy who I would never dare let pick out bedding for us actually is about to, like, take our – life savings yeah. and go send it to, <laughs> you're, to you're welcome america yeah, exactly. i jumped in and scott did not design all of our products <laughs> yeah and it wasn't that simple right like at first we thought like it could be that simple you can luckily you know living in new jersey we had access to a lot of importers and middlemen who were in new jersey or the city i you know that we just pop in and meet with everyone we could talk with anyone and it could be as simple as you know just take some base cloth that's you know sold in the market and, I mean, you know, look at ninety percent of the sheets brands that are out there. They're all just private labeling. The yeah, same you junk put with a, a different brand. Put a well, I wouldn't. It, and then it's like, do you even call them a brand? You just put a name on it, and then it's like brand in a box. And here's our website, and you know, catchy phrase. But that's when it just didn't feel right to us. I, it was just in conversations with some of these people who I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. The teacher and me, I want to see the factory where this is being made. And I want to know like, where are the farms? I want to go to these places. Like, I just wanted to know who was behind the products. It was really shocking when people wouldn't let us know or they just didn't know. So they're more like go over to the wall and pick the option. And please like, yeah, don't bother me with these, with these what they thought were like silly questions and the more the more like walls we ran into uh, around information the more i started at least in my mind and i know missy as well like we're like wait there there's something here why why do none of us actually care about our sheets like it think of a product you use more often than your bed sheets like it's very very difficult to think of a single product and and so every place that we went and they're like, well, you know, our sheets are made in Italy. And then like I would go in and reverse engineer their supply chain myself. This is this is about a year and a half of our our lives. And you can imagine, you know, we're we're a real fun couple. Um, <laughs> let, let me just say we've got a, like a dining room table of like 800 samples of fabric from all over the place. And our friends like come over and they're like, 
Yeah, great, guys. This looks awesome. But we became really passionate because we felt that there was like, this was like a bit of a mystery. It was a bit of a puzzle of like, okay, if you were to start over, if you were to start the textile business over from scratch, what would we end up producing? There was a lot of social injustice, as we all know, involved in the textile industry. There's a lot of environmental injustice. There, There's a lot of like just consumers don't really trust textile companies. And, and as we found, probably for pretty good reason. So it, it became like, like this project, like what if we started it from scratch and we made every single right decision? Do we even have a viable business? Or is this just a book about like why the world sucks? Why did you think people would care? I cared. When we think about what the most important ingredient to a successful new business is is genuine passion and interest. And like to, to really simply answer your question, I cared. I suddenly found myself deeply and sincerely caring about the product I would use and then and by the same time being more or less disgusted with the way the industry worked. We really felt like we can we can make a change to an industry. And if we can do this, if we can actually prove out this concept that you can make a better product, more affordable, and do everything the right way at the same time, just by like being a little bit less bloated of a company, then we could actually make a profound impact to everybody from the customer who doesn't care about all that. They're still sleeping on a better product to the people that are growing cotton that are going to finally live above the poverty line for the first time in their lives because we're fair trade certifying the cotton. Like there's all this meaning and we found ourselves incredibly passionate about it to the point that we said, what if we could tell the story? What if, what if a customer, what if the public had access to all the information? What if they actually could make an honest choice? Are they going to say, you know what? I'd rather buy the overpriced, low quality, high markup licensed sheets that are made from toxic cotton by men and women who are paid at a third of the living wage. Like, is that the choice the public's going to make? And, and so, so by the time we launched, we genuinely felt so incredibly passionate. We'd been to India, we'd met with so many people, and, and we were maybe a bit blind in our optimism, but, but I think we're pretty optimistic people. We like to see the best in things. And I, I just remember, I just believed, like, we can't be the only ones that when, when faced with this information that, that are going to change our behavior. And, and it, is, it is such an ad- admirable goal, but it's also a really hard one. You're talking through here, breaking apart the uh, supply chain of the existing producers and restarting it from the ground up without actually being able to turn that optimism into a product. You are still just left with a book. Can you kind of take me back and, and talk me through how you actually got to that first set of, of, uh, of that first sample, that first set of sheets, those first uh, rolls of fabric that you were evaluating? The first step, once I, once I started to understand cotton growing, and, and which is an agricultural product, and, and I started to understand where it came from, not in terms of the region, but in terms of, of thinking about the process and the people, you, you very quickly understand the importance of organic cotton. 
there's not this enormous demand among consumers for organic cotton like there is organic food, right? You don't eat it. It's a little bit more abstract to understand. But the environmental impacts, quite simply, is it's a fraction of, of conventional cotton that uses a tons of pesticides and chemicals. And then when you think about the fact that you're, you're talking about rural villages that their water and the things that they drink are coming right out of the ground. They don't have fancy filtration and things like that. So suddenly these chemicals and pesticides are finding their way into their water supply. And, and you say, all right, if I'm starting from zero, I cannot use anything but organic cotton. Otherwise, I'm perpetuating something really, really bad. For us, I, I, it, was, it was good old-fashioned Google and hard work and, and a lot of research for overseas publications and things like that. And I discovered a, a cotton cooperative called Chetna, whom we still were now their, their largest purchaser of organic cotton. It was a cooperative um, that was started that was, was helping folks that lived in part of India where genetically modified seeds are not legal, so you can't farm them. So in their case, they were going in and helping to teach these farmers how to farm organically so that they could have access to a cash crop and ultimately money and and support their families and and schools and and things like that. And I just became so impressed with the vision behind the NGO that that helped them get started. And and from there, you know, it, it was about finding well, where's, where's the right factories, where, where are the right cut and sews and, and, and dye mills and, and things like that. So while we're at the same time parallel pathing with all the conventional players and getting all their samples, we, we were building our, our, this supply chain, this, this idea of a supply chain. And as those samples came in and we realized when you have to design everything from scratch, you can make such a better product. And, and so those samples came in, we loved them, and then we started blind testing them with our friends. I had two pillowcases of each. I had an unwashed one and then one that I would wash around 10 times. I believe that I should be able to pick out the best fabric blindly. So how does it feel before it's washed? How does it feel after it's washed 10 times? And that's what we had on our dining room table for so long and did pull in any friends, any family members, anyone who would wanted to just see what was going on in our lives were, were drawn into this blind test. I believe the most important thing was that we had a soft sheet, that we had our whites being bright white. It wasn't like a traditional organic product where you might think of it being more natural in color and not as current in styling. So I wanted what we were making to be right on point with anything else in the market, in the luxury market. I didn't want people to feel like they had to sacrifice style or colors or anything like that or softness for a better product. Luckily, in digging and going along, and even with the organic cotton that we found, not all organic cotton is created equally and not all. You can take any cotton, and it's also then about how you spin the yarn size, how you weave it, how you dye it, which is really important both for how it feels and for the environment. Then you get to that last cut and sew factory where those beautiful little stitching details come to be so important. But there's so much along the way that we were considering. And so the culmination of it was, I don't know, would you say March of 2013, right before we Mm -hmm. placed our first PO? We had all those samples out on the table, all the pricing, because I also want to make sure that, that the customer is getting what they're paying for. I didn't feel like you should have to spend more money to get a product that you would only see a little bit of a difference. I always wanted to make sure it was worth it. So there was that moment of truth in March and April where we had to pick something 
to move forward with or just like let all this year-long research go. And at that time, side by side, Rana Plaza was the deadliest factory collapse in history that happened in Bangladesh, killing thousands of workers from an unsafe factory. So we're hearing that just as consumers, you know, watching the news. And then here I have all these fabrics out there. And I'm like, gosh, I'm going to do this blindly. I want that fair trade organic cotton to win, but I'm not going to cheat the customer. I still want it to be soft and beautiful. And thank goodness for everything we believe in and for our customers and for now the life of Bull and Branch. Those sheets that were the fair trade organic won hands down on their own to create the best product we could make. So from that point forward, we placed our first PO, and then we launched January of, was it 2014? Yeah. And I think that that is an important distinction in terms of the the quality of the fabric and, and the price point and all of these things. I do think if you want to sell to a mass audience, you have to care more about just it being organic and fair trade. And, and that's a bit of a shame, but customers are fickle. They want what they want. They want to see what they want and they want quality. How did you kind of think about balancing those two things? Because to your point, it's not the easy route to make something that is both eco and not uh, perhaps granola. We understand that most of our customers are not buying us because it's organic. They're not buying us because it's fair trade. They're buying our sheets because of the softest they've ever felt. They're buying it because of the reputation that they have. Um, They're buying it because of the customer service we offer. And they're buying it for the style and design. And we feel great about the fact that whether or not someone identifies as a, you know, someone committed to a clean lifestyle or committed to, you know, understanding human rights involved with the different products that they're making, they're still making a difference. Whether they realize it or not, their purchase makes a difference. And the quality of the product that we sell is ultimately why people continue to come back to us. And and the impact is real and it's enormous. But I think all those little, all these different pieces help us really create that brand. And that brand that we were talking about before of It's not just a product we're making with a name on it. The more people learn about our products, we find that people just fall in love with them even more and more than they thought they could once they find out about how they were manufactured and how the cotton was grown. Talk to me about that. Your brand identity matters so much because that is what you're shouting to the rooftops. How did you kind of, you know, take the sum of all those parts and conceptualize into something that is concise and that does resonate? Look, for a business today, brand is the only long-term asset we have left. That's it. You're 100% right. Anybody can immediately source any type of product, open up a Shopify store, sell it online, buy, buy advertising on Facebook and AdWords or, or anything else, and, and immediately you know have a market. So so I think that the challenge with brand, and I think that this is what for so many entrepreneurs becomes a challenge, is brand is not built overnight. Brand is built over time. So there are so many products that have awareness, but they don't have brand appeal because those the values don't have time to marinate with the customer. And the customer doesn't sort of come back time and time again and see, wow, this company, they, they said they were doing things this way. And now look, they've done six more products. And, and those same values kind of go through. And that's something that means means something to me, right? The market is becoming so cluttered with, 
new companies in all these different categories. And the reality is, is like, I'm competing with other betting brands just as much as I'm competing with luggage companies and razor companies and, uh, you know, apparel and everything else under the sun, because we're all in this digital marketplace looking for share of, of wallet for the customer. From our standpoint, we've really tried to to take a lot of time to build the relationships with the customers. We listen to them, we reach out to them proactively, we reach out to them on a one-on-one basis. And driving repeat customer revenue is the single most important thing that we look at because when a customer comes back to you again, that, that says a lot. That says that you met their needs from a product standpoint, you met their needs from a services standpoint. They understand why you're doing what you're doing and, 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 and what your brand is all about. And I think that if you look at the way venture capitalists look at businesses, they're always looking at a customer acquisition cost to LTV ratio, right? So they're looking at things like, well, what's your new customer growth? And they're never thinking about long-term repeat customers. And that's the difference between building a business that's designed to be sold, building the business that's designed to be just sort of like flipped out, or building a business like like We Hope All and Branch, which is we expect it to be around for a generation. And and I want to pick your brain on this because the things you're talking about are some of the reasons why we felt like we wanted to build their shop. We wanted to be a place where as the cost of customer acquisition is skyrocketing, as individual brands who have really great, very narrow focus can have a place to find incremental revenue, to get in front of new customers, we see that it's gotten tougher out there or more expensive perhaps to share that message. And also the places where you can find scale before a player like us jumps in there there are things going on that can dilute your brand equity. You might be sitting next to kind of not the best uh, third-party sellers or things like that. As you look forward in terms of how you message to the customer, how you get in front of the right audience, what channels you're uh, preferring these days with your background in marketing, where do you think the world is going right now as we see Facebook ads, Instagram ads, Google search uh, keyword prices going up and up and up, and those channels are getting a little bit more expensive. When we set out to build Bull and Branch, and this is something we actually committed to paper as part of our vision, we wanted to become the first ever trusted brand in textiles. And when I think about Verishop, I think about a very similar motivation relative to retail, right? And customers are not necessarily trusting the opinions and thoughts of their retailers. Let's think about Amazon, right? You can find anything on Amazon. And sometimes when you say finding anything, that's not necessarily a good thing because you don't really find what you're actually looking for. Maybe you're going to read reviews, but now, you know, everybody hears that all these reviews are fake and what does it mean and what does it mean? And I think that that what appealed to us about Verishop was the fact that you were working with brands and businesses that you guys believe in. And and so what you bring together from a customer standpoint is a collection of businesses and brands in a bunch of different categories that you've vetted and, and you've determined, you know what, these are the best in breed in this particular area. I always look at like Trader Joe's as a wonderful example of that. Trader Joe's doesn't sell 15 ketchups. They sell one really good one. To me, that's the future of what I would consider more of a mass market retail. You have some really amazing stuff. What are your kind of hero key products that you are really obsessed with that have stood the test of time over the last six years? 
We have our signature soft fabric that hands down is what we've become loved for and known for. So that's that comes in different trim styles, whether you just want our hemmed, which is a classic seven inch hem with a little update or a banded sheet set. You name it, um, just the ba- just the trims have changed on that, and it's always the same great base fabric. And that's what, when we launched, that we still have to this day, and that's definitely our number one seller. But then every other product that we've introduced, we've approached the exact same way as that sheet. So whether it's our pillows or our mattress or even a seasonal blanket, um, everything is made with the highest quality both in how it looks, how it feels, how it was manufactured, and how the raw materials were made. So, you know, whether it's our pillows that have responsibly sourced down to our mattress that's all natural, like literally, I don't know, I'm obsessed with every single product. I feel like they're all my babies that I I can't just pick one. But our sheet sets are certainly a great place to start. If you really understand that there are two reasons you wake up at night, it's really simple. You're too hot or your partner's rolling around, right? And, and, or you got to go to the bathroom. I can't fix that. When you think about what a great set of sheets do, they breathe. You're not going to overheat. You stay cool. And when it comes to things like your mattress, when you can isolate movement and suddenly you can stop yourself feeling your partner, you know, those are, those are real world impacts. So, you know, in case folks haven't realized, spoiler alert, uh, this idea that you had back in 2012 turned into a real thing um, and it kicked off. And now we're uh, more than half a decade into the Bull and Branch journey and y'all are y'all are doing well. I love to celebrate the successes, but I also think overcoming the challenges are some of the most important things. Was there ever a moment or what was the biggest moment? Because I'm sure these moments happened where you were like, oh, goodness, this is not going to work. You mean just today or? <laughs> um, well, it is funny. You know, I, I, I was talking to, to a, a guy that I've, I've gotten to know and he's he's starting a company and, and sort of, you know, I always just try to anytime somebody, you know, has a question. So many people help me that, that I always try to pay it forward. And I, I did say to him, like, you know, look, the, the number one thing I'm worried worried about today is no longer are we going to be in business tomorrow. But that was definitely a worry for a long period of time, especially because we self-funded ourselves, right? We didn't have um, and and really did not want a big sort of venture capital backed safety net that would also cause us to maybe make short-term decisions that we didn't think was the right thing to do. But there have been, there are constantly major challenges, right? From a year in when we accidentally ordered an enormous number of boxes that we didn't need. Like someone added a zero to like the Like cardboard boxes. Cardboard boxes. <laughs> when we were shipping... Um, the first uh, year we air freighted everything. Yeah, we, we couldn't keep up with demand. We're air freighting. You know, we're, we're paying like hundreds of thousands of dollars in air freight just to... Just because like... I think it was close to a million dollars. Yeah, I mean... what Honestly... What, what Missy and I are, are good at certain things. Um, math may not be my strong suit. Um, so when you have me putting together a demand plan and product forecast, it turns a little into like, yeah, what do you think? And, and instead of being scientific now, fortunately we have people that are far smarter than me. Um, many, many of them working here now and preventing me from doing the things on a daily basis that could bankrupt us. Um, you know, again, it's like trying not to break Oreo. I'm trying to put that system in place. Like nobody break bowl and branch. This is pretty special. Like, please don't break it. I mean, if you think about it, there, there's risk, right, which is taking basically all of our life savings and sending it to India um, 
to a guy who's now a dear friend, but at the time was just a guy, um, that, uh, and hoping he sent back a boat full of sheets in like six months. Um, that was risky. Uh, but where it got to the point was demand was so high that, that we were air freighting to customers. Um, we were overnighting for free and we financed that all by taking five separate mortgages on our house. And we were like, in 2020 hindsight, we were bonkers. You know, at the time, I think we were just incredibly optimistic. But um, but to how you were saying in the beginning, like, you know, you've got this idea. You're like patience was not a, an option at that point. Like you are just going, going for it. And so I think, you know, we're both extremely driven people and persistent. So, you know, whatever it took at that time to... Yeah. To get our brand and our business going was without obviously compromising quality or the people. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you know, we did anything we needed to. To Scott's point, like every few months or every half a year, there's always something that's like, OK, this is the next step. The next like, OK, I'm going to have a pit in my stomach, but we're going to go for it or we're going to do this. And at every step, it's been even more challenging. But then so much more rewarding because you're like, wow, we just did that in the last year. And then we just did that in the last year. Like things that we didn't think were possible, it just keeps going and going. And so now we look back after five years of just making those decisions back in the very beginning of how we were going to source our products and, and make them to the best of our ability. We're now, after five years, the largest purchaser of fair trade organic cotton in the world. So that's something that obviously I'm super proud of, that all that hard work and what our whole team is driving for every single day is having this amazing ripple effect around every single person who touches our product, from customer all the way back to farm. And and I also, I do have to ask, you obviously are taking your work home. You're remortgaging your house. You're bringing home your sheets to uh, lay out on the dining room table. How do you maintain your sanity? Um, maintain <laughs> it? Do we have it? Um, no, I, I will say there, there, that it, it's, we are the most, I, I like to think the, the most family first people we can be. And, and so... We like so many of our our team members here. We have we have three daughters. Um, we have a family, and they come first. Um, they come first, second, and third. And and so I won't tell you the order because then they would get upset. Um, but but uh, I'm just it is pretty horrible. Um, uh, we'll do that offline. But um, no. But the, the the truth is that we are. It's you know oh there's no patient on the operating table like yeah we bring a ton of work home but you know what we sit down and have dinner as a family every night and I I don't stay here till seven eight o'clock every night if I have to log in at night I have to you know Missy's always call on calls with our factory at like two in the morning and usually she doesn't leave the bedroom so it wakes me up just so she's you know <laughs> but uh but but you know we have to do those sorts of things but I think in terms of maintaining our sanity it, it's really about remembering what's most important and what's most important to us is that we've got three 
girls, you know, our oldest is a freshman in high school and, and, uh, or just finished as a freshman and the, the little guys are going into seventh grade next, next year twins. And we have a finite amount of time with them and they did not sign up for Bowling Branch. Um, they are, there's nobody yeah. that's a bigger supporter of Bowling Branch than them. They've been to India that we just took them to our factories and there's so much pride. But that that's they what I would say. Bowling Branch is like our fourth child though. Yeah. I feel like it is just a, as much a part of our lives as our children and our children are part of the Bull and Branch family as well. Yeah. Um, they have relationships with factory workers just like we do and with the children over there. They've gone to the factories just like Scott was saying. The spring break we all went. So yeah, it's a little abnormal of a spring break when they come back and say, oh, I was in India, <laughs> you know, but um, instead of Florida or something. But that's all part of their neat childhood that they've had. You know, they're included in just yeah. as much as we can. At least Missy and I are aware of, like, I know when she's up against a deadline or she's dealing with something hairy. And you know what? It means I might scoot out of here early and make sure the kids have rides home from school. And they and we're, we're very lucky to be able to do that as working parents where we can pick up the slack for each other. Um, because we we both understand both what we're doing and why it's important, and I think a lot of a lot of spouses that work in different companies they they don't have that ability to sort of see really why the the accommodation in their in their personal life needs to be made by the other one. So we we have that like everything in life is a team sport, you know when when you have a family, and and so um, as Missy said, this business is part of that that team. Today, Bowen Branch is more than just a bedding company. At Verishop, we sell their sheets and also products like their duvet inserts, bath sheets, and throw blankets. In typical Bowen Branch style, everything is made from organic materials. See those items and more of our favorites in the Finding Inspo shop at verishop.com inspo. And first-time Verishop customers get 20% off with the code INSPOBB. Tell me where you are finding inspo for my conversation with Scott and Missy, and I may read it on a future episode. In a review on Apple Podcasts, I shorty said, looking forward to hearing what drives the passion behind all the great minds you will be interviewing. I shorty, you will not be disappointed. Leave your thoughts and review on your podcast platform or reach me on Instagram and Twitter at Alex Barenka or at Inspo Podcast. This podcast was produced by me, Alex Barenka, with production and editing support from Wonder Media Network. Thanks so much for listening and see you soon.